<laughs> daily making it. Uh, so we're at a time and a season, given age, given the times that we're in, where it can be frustrating and discouraging, and I've even had uh, some detractors from here tell me that what we started here, or what I believe God started here, has failed. Uh, they consider it a complete failure. Now, does that hold water? Have we failed? And if we failed, why are we still here? <laughs> if we failed, why don't we just go about our own business and do our own thing and, uh, and admit that we failed? Well, I don't admit that this has failed. I admit maybe we've failed in a lot of ways, but I don't think what God started here has failed. And I'll back that up here in a little bit and show you, uh, I think, some very, very encouraging things. Now, let's go back to last week's sermon, which was a tape done in 1997, which is, at this point, 20 years old. And it was amazing for me to listen to that tape about rending your heart and not your garments and realize that it was truer last week when it was played than it was 20 years ago when it was first given. Uh, I think God certainly inspired that approach and what was said there, and it certainly hit home last week as I sat and listened to it. Now, let's go back a little bit to that and understand that the point that I made in that sermon was when people rendered their garments, something horrible had happened, something that was very distressing, uh, evil news, uh, destruction, uh, in Ezra's case, realizing how far they had departed from God and went through all of those things, showing that uh, a violent reaction occurred when there was very disheartening, discouraging news. And they violently wrung their garments, uh, or rended them, uh, so that they split them in two over something gone wrong. Uh, so there was very great emotion involved when people lent their garments and donned sackcloth and ashes to mourn, to seek God, to try to find an answer to whatever calamity had occurred. So that is the setting of rending your hearts. Now let's go back to Joel for a moment. Uh, I quoted this in that sermon last week, but Joel is a book about the end times. The overall theme is uh, the day of the Lord, the terrible events at the end of this age, and what needs to be done when we find ourselves in this position, where the whole world is about to go into World War III, where the church is being decimated, and the world does not have a very rosy uh, future ahead of it, at least for the short term. Now here he says in chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. That's the church. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the eternal comes, for it is near at hand. So the setting here of Joel is right where we are today. Uh, and he, he goes on to describe the darkness and the fire that will burn and how much pain and famine and 
uh, war there will be. And after describing that, down in verse 12, he says, Therefore, because these things are upon us, uh, now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart. Make him your absolute focus, your whole heart. And with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Then he uses this phrase, and rend your heart, not your garments. Rending your garments will show your body. Rending your heart will open up what is inside. And it will likely not be a very pretty picture what is inside a human heart. So that implies by rending it open, you show it, you make it obvious, and then that implies you do something about it. Don't leave it that way. Clean it up while it's open. For God, for you, perhaps even others to see, but mainly God and you. That's where God opened his heart up in Psalm 51 was to God, <laughs> not to all the people around him. Because salvation is a personal issue. It's between you and God. We're not responsible for each other's salvation, even though some think that is the case. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not somebody else's. I have some right now who've said they need to work mine out for me, because they don't think God can do it, and I certainly can't. But that's, uh, that's a dereliction of truth and scripture. So rend your hearts, not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repents him, or relents him, or will remove the evil. So, how much faith do we have in God? That when our hearts turn out to not be what they should be, do we trust him to be able to work salvation in us? We cannot work salvation in ourselves. There's no way we can change ourselves into spirit and go flying off the earth uh, into the heavens. Can't happen. God works his salvation. But he expects us to humble ourselves and cleanse ourselves and to overcome, as he makes very clear in Revelation 2 and 3. Who knows if he will return and relent? There is that great possibility since he is a merciful God. And leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering to the eternal your God. So he says, blow the trumpet, sound the warning, sanctify a fast, call assemble, a solemn assembly. Now that's been done off and on over the years, and we've done it here a time or two. But... This hasn't grown old, and it is not a prophecy that is completely fulfilled yet. When you see all these things coming, it's time to gather the people, sanctify or set aside the congregation to serve God. Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts, young and old. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In other words... The focus is not on the physical. It isn't time to be marrying and giving in marriage and having children. In fact, there's even a warning about those that have children and give suck uh, when this thing is uh, winding up. So, in other words, don't be focusing on the physical, the family, 
focus primarily on God. That's where our focus should be. Let the priests, the ministers of the eternal, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O eternal. Uh, I know that's one prayer I've prayed a lot recently, over the last year or two, as we've gotten older and more decrepit, and some die, and and we barely get around. Uh, Spare your people, because he's promised in Isaiah that he would do these things before the flesh fails before him. The flesh of some has already failed, but it hasn't all failed. And whether that means in death or in a dereliction of duty or departing or rebelling or whatever, uh, we need to be spared. Give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. The heathen are coming to rule. They're going to take over this nation. Uh, What about the church? Will it be in that, or will it be spared and protected? And it says then, Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Now, that's tantamount to what I was told. This has failed. It's, It's over. It's done. It's failed. In other words, where is your God? You thought you were serving God, and now you failed. Where is your God? About the same words, really. So he says he will remove far off from you the northern army. Micah 4, 5 shows how a few will go out against the northern army and send the Assyrian packing. Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Context here is still just before the day of the Lord. It's this time leading up to it. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Does that show we ought to be disheartened and discouraged now? Be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil, and he will restore all the trouble that we've had, and you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. Sounds like Isaiah 54 and 55. My people will not be ashamed. Verse 26. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. Christ says there in Zechariah 2, He'll come dwell with us in the time of the latter temple, and the two witnesses, and the remnant of the people who are there to build the temple. And it shall come to pass afterward, verse 28, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy, your old men dream dreams, your young men see visions. And I'll pour out my spirit and show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And then it describes the day of the Lord. But his people will be taken care of. That's the whole context. In the midst of this trouble, uh, in the name of the Lord they shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. So that's That's what uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are based on. 
about the church being protected and accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. So God shows, right here in Joel, that if we rend our hearts and turn to God with all our hearts, He may turn and bless us and help us. And this is a prophecy. Now, we see many things written in the Old Testament prophecies that are simply types for the future. Uh, Isaiah was used as a type of ancient Israel who would go into captivity and be stripped bare. Uh, and he went around butt naked for, what was it, a year or so, uh, as a type of what would happen to Israel who would go with their hands on their heads, uh, stripped bare, butt naked, uh, into captivity. And Isaiah, of course, was not just a prophecy for then. It talks about uh, all through Isaiah, and especially toward the end, about the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God coming. So Isaiah is an end-time prophecy as well. So that type of Isaiah being stripped and having to go naked is a type uh, for us here at the end. Now, Let's look at this thing a little bit. I want to throw some numbers at you, and let's see where we are. Now, Worldwide Church of God began very small and grew uh, to the point where uh, the number that was thrown about quite commonly was that it had gotten up to about 150,000 people. Okay? That was the number that was used. I don't know exactly how many were on the roll book and how many, but that many showed up at the feast anyway, about 150,000. That's the commonly used number, I think, pretty much throughout the church. Now we come to today, and a great deal of attrition has occurred. Uh, people have died, people have grown weary, people have uh, rebelled. People have gone their own way, and who's to say that there are 15,000 uh, faithful members of God's church remaining today? Uh, that's about a 90% reduction. Now, God said there in Ezekiel 5 that the church would be reduced by 90%. And then Ezekiel was to take a few more hairs and throw them into the fire. So a little less than 10% would remain when it's all said and done. I think today it's probably a little over uh, 10% that's still remaining, but the attrition is still going on day by day through death and defection and various things of that nature. So we're approaching at least that 10% and then to go a little under. He says the same thing of the nation when it's overtaken by physical warfare that over 90% of our people will ultimately die in this nation and even more than 90% of the world, which is what Satan and the New World Order have planned. Uh, God said it, and now Satan is in the middle of enacting it. And it's going to hit real soon now, the same as it has spiritually in the church. So we have that record that what God promised, what he prophesied in Ezekiel and all the other prophecies, has now essentially occurred. Now, we 
may have been used as a microcosm. Remember, I have used the work of the end-time church, the latter temple, and how God will bless it, just as we read just now in Joel 2. There are many, many other scriptures to back it up. How God will bless it uh, at the end. So, God uses these types throughout the Bible. And I'll tell you, I do believe that God is using the church as a microcosm of what will happen to the nation. Now, we've already seen that thesis proved by what has happened to Worldwide Church of God. We're approaching those numbers just as God said they would. Now, what if there is another microcosm of the church itself? The church represents the microcosm of the nation and what would happen to it. Now, is there another type or example or microcosm of what would happen to the church? Let's look at our history a little bit here, since we're supposed to see God in our lives. We started out with 70 people at the first feast. First uh, phone broadcast we had uh, was at Trumpets of 2000, and somewhere out of the woodwork, without any proselyting or anything else, 70 people showed up at Zion for the feast in 2000. That's an interesting number in itself. I don't know what to attach to it, but 7 times 10 is a perfect number of beginnings. Then the next year we went to 120, which is apparently the number that they had at uh, Pentecost in uh, Acts 2. The next year, we went up to 150 at the feast in attendance. Third year, up to 150. Now, interestingly enough, that was our top number. It was 150. How much is 150 compared to 150,000? 1%. So we had 1% of the 150,000 that had 150,000 that had been Worldwide Church of God. And those are, I think, exact numbers. Uh, at the time, I kind of counted, and, and it wasn't 152 or 3 or 48, it was 150. And that's the number that has been used. Now, the next year, after the 150, we went to 120. And the next year, back down to 70. So 70, 120, 150, 120, back down to 70. And since then, it has declined and declined until we're down to actual membership of about 10% of that 150. There's not much left. That's a 90% reduction. That's exactly what has happened to Worldwide. That's what's happened to us right here. Now, does that indicate total and utter failure? Or is that one of those signs and one of those types that God is using? Can we possibly be a type of what has happened to the church? And is that the end of the story? Let's go to Judges 7 for a moment. Judges 7. 
Here's the story of Gideon. We're quite familiar with it and what God did, but let's look at the numbers here. Uh, God was going to deliver uh, Israel from the Assyrians. Chapter 7, verse 1. I, here's an interesting thought right here. Is in verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, now that's the same root, the same name as Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, and used in uh, in Zechariah and Micah, uh, not Micah, but uh, Haggai, and in Ezra. Same name uh, that Gideon had. We always called him Gideon, but that's interesting that that same root is there, who was there to deliver, as is Zerubbabel to come and build the temple and deliver God's people. With, through God, of course. God through him. Anyway, <coughs> there were gathered there 32,000 down in verse uh, 3. And Gideon was told, hey, that's too many people. Send some home. So he gave them the option of leaving, and 22,000 went home. He says, I don't want to fight. I've been given opportunity. I'll go home. So there were 10,000 that remained in the verse 3. Now God says that's too many people. God was going to show his great power, not the might of mankind and his armor. Uh, just as it said, and I referred to there in Micah, where seven, even eight principal men will go out against the Assyrian when he comes, and they will turn tail. So God did here. So he had them go lap the water. We know the story. And uh, 300 who looked up and brought the water to them, their mouths were the ones God said he was going to use to deliver Israel. Now let's look at those numbers. There were 32,000 there. That was reduced to 300. That's just about 10%. Just a little over. 3,200. Uh, or, or 320, <laughs> uh, would be, well, wait a minute, let's see, 32,000, 3,200 would be 10%, 320 would be 1% then, 1%, or a little over 1%. We were 1% of worldwide at our biggest, which isn't much. Now, is God going to use 1% again? Now, it was here a little bit over 1%, just as I think worldwide today is a little over 10%. Maybe it's not down to 15,000, but it's not a much bigger number than that. And we are not quite down to 10% uh, or 15, but not much over that. And here, Gideon was just a little over 1%. Now, that would, that would be enough. <clears throat> so the numbers work out in God's mind. That's what he uses. Uh, let's go to Mark 4. We've looked upon the, the parables that Christ gave mostly as, uh, as just that. They're a story about the kingdom of God. I don't know that we've often 
applied them as prophecies. I think some of them sometimes we have. But let's look at this as prophecy today, here in Mark 4. <clears throat> he began again to teach by the seaside, and a great multitude came, and he taught them many parables. In verse 3, he said, listen, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, the fowls of the air came and devoured the seed. Some seed fell on stony ground, wasn't much ground there, and it sprang up, and since there was no place for the roots to go, when the sun was up, it scorched it and had no root and withered away. Some fell in the thorns, and the thorns grew, the weeds, and choked it to death. Others fell on good ground, the fourth category, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. And he said, listen, you got ears. And when he was alone, the multitude was gone, the disciples came, and he said to them, uh, to you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to them that are without, all these things are done in parables, so they wouldn't understand. Now, he's giving them some insight. I think the multitude that was there could have seen uh, the surface of what he had said. If some are called, you know, different things happen and they, they don't last. The, the seed in the field don't always grow and produce. They could see that much. Is that all there is to this story? He said, no, here, there's more here for you. Understand. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them, and then they dry up or the weeds choke them or whatever, they'd be lost. So he says, I don't want them to understand right now. <clears throat> so he said, but you know this parable. And if you don't, how will you know all parables? If this one's a mystery to you, <laughs> what will the others be? So then he explained, the sower sows the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Uh, and likewise, those are sown on stony ground and immediately receive it with gladness, but they have no root and they don't endure but a short while. And when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, they are offended. As soon as trouble shows, they're gone. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world, the thorny Satan's society, the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then you have those which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit. And he said to them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? This is a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the end time and of the calling of God's people and what would happen to them. It was only for those who would be the leaders of the church at that point to understand what would occur. Because they would see it. They would experience it. When the word was first sowed there in Acts 2 on Pentecost, there was a great commotion and a following, and 3,000 and 5,000 baptized in one day. 
And uh, boy, a lot of people heard, a lot of seed was sowed. But then all those things began to happen to that church so that 70 years later, it was almost out of existence. Would you have said at that point that the church had failed? Now you look back and you say, oh no, I wouldn't say that. What if you had been there? What if you had heard and knew about this parable, and then you saw the apostles being killed one after another, and somewhere in the 90s A.D., about 70 years later, there was the Apostle John, who was the only man left standing of the original ministry, and he was writing to a people who had been diminished almost to nothing. The early New Testament church essentially disappeared by 100 A.D. And what little was left of it was not seen or heard from, and the Catholic church arose and became the bellwether of Christianity, so to speak. But God's church, God's true church, basically was gone. Now, fast forward 1,900 years, when another was begun, and it grew to 150,000. I don't know how big the early New Testament church got. There are no stats on that. But now it is somewhere barely over 15,000, almost 10,000, or 90% reduced, 10% left, plus maybe a little, and, and it's fast failing. And people would say, Worldwide Church of God has failed. Wouldn't they? It's gone. It doesn't even exist anymore. But there are some who are still following God's way. Exact same thing that happened to the early New Testament church. The exact same thing. Was one a microcosm or a type of the other? Yes, it was. God is going to reduce the end time church to 10%. They'll come and join with the two witnesses to build the final temple, preach the gospel around the world, and then the end will come. That's prophesied to happen. So these parables here were actually prophecies of what would occur. And this parable of the seed and the sower actually occurred. It wasn't just a nice saying. It was a prophecy. Now, I think that there's a possibility that Church of the Great God will be, and the members there, and the leadership may be a part of what happens here at the end. Now, they haven't had the same attrition there that we have here, but I have heard uh, that they have been reduced to around 2,000, rough number, I'm not 2,200. <laughs> when I was there working for the organization, it was about 400, and it was stayed right around 400 for years. Now it's been reduced by about half. Let's go to Matthew 25 for a moment. Matthew 25. Is it possible that that organization is also a type of some things that would happen? Now, here in Matthew 24 and 25, Christ is speaking of the end times very, very clearly. 
and tells us to watch in verse 42 of 24. And he says, then there will be uh, hypocrites, verse 51 of 24. Uh, those who smite their fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken and, and don't take care of each other and so on. Uh, verse 51, And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> so there will be hypocrisy at the end, uh, at the time of all these earth-shaking events that are about to occur. Let's look at hypocrisy for a moment. <clears throat> the first uh, syllable is hypo, hippo, hypocrite, hypo. If you look that up in Webster's, uh, the definition of hippo or hypo there, H-Y-P-O, is under or lower or base or the lowest form is what hypo means. The second half of that word, or more than half, is critical. So critical means what? Those who criticize others, who put others down, who say others aren't what they should be, and are full of anger and hate and criticism of other people. So self-righteousness and hypocritical go together. It is the lowest form, the basest form of criticism is to be a hypocrite. Now let's look at the definition of hypocrite or hypocritical specifically. And hypocritical means playing a part on a stage. That is, this is not real, this is acting. This is playing a part of something. Second, second definition, feigning to be what one is not. Now, isn't that what an actor on a stage does? He projects himself into a, a different entity or a different person or a different character so that it's not him, but it is that uh, personality that he is trying to copy. So, feigning to be what one is not fits very well with uh, the religious side of this. And Christ called the Pharisees hypocrites because they, they play-acted and feigned that they were righteous and honorable in keeping the commandments when they weren't. And they were critical of everyone around them. So they were the lowest base form of criticism that there was at that time. Uh, a third definition is claiming to believe what one does not really believe. Now, what is faith based on? real, total belief that God is God and that He will do what He says He will do. Are you discouraged because we might have a death or defections or a rebellion? Or do you read that those things will occur? Do you see in history that they have occurred in the early New Testament church, the end time church, and even this little one, and perhaps even uh, the other I mentioned, which is about half what it was, Church of the Great God. Let's read chapter 25. <clears throat> then, when is then? When all these things are beginning to take place that Matthew 24 talks about. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps 
and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So those who are candidates for the kingdom of heaven, that is, members of the church, okay? Can't be talking about people who aren't uh, involved in and uh, seeking to be a part of the kingdom of God. Has to be true Christians here. Ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So we in the church understand that we're to be the bride of Christ, 144,000 included in that number. These are the first fruits, nothing more, nothing less. Five of them are wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. It doesn't do any good to have a lamp unless you've got something to power it. It doesn't do any good to try to be a Christian unless you have something to power it. You need the Spirit of God. So while the bridegroom tarried, does it seem to you that Christ is tarrying, that he's waiting? Does it seem to grow long? I've been anticipating it since the 50s. I anticipated it greatly, even more greatly during the 60s before I began to realize that 72 wasn't the flight time and 75 wasn't the return of Christ. And then some said 82 is another possible date. So we've jumped from stone to stone trying to maneuver across without drowning uh, to the time when Christ would return. Now, when I was given to understand these prophecies in 1996 and on, I thought it was imminent. You, you, you would. And here we are over 20 years later, and they haven't all happened yet. But, how could we have thought that I would split off over a calendar issue, that we would start and go from 70 to 120 to 150 to 120 to 70 to about 15, 10%? I couldn't have known that then. But they all fit what has happened in the past. They all fit the prophecies. Now, maybe CGG has been careless. Its leadership right now is, I believe, according to Isaiah, blind and deaf, but the deafness and blindness will be taken away when God begins to do some things that he's outlined in the prophecies. We just read one of them in Joel 2. But it seems to the whole church that Christ has waited and waited, and it isn't really him that is tarried, it's us that have been impatient. It's us that have set dates over and over and over again, thinking the time was near and it was still decades away. Now I think it's near. I don't think I'm wrong now either. Based on the leaves on the trees we see happening in the world and in the church. Because these prophecies are about finished. Worldwide will not go down below about 10,000, I mean 10% of faithful people, because that's the number of the remnant that will come. We're almost there. If we're a microcosm of that church, then we are down to those numbers, and we won't get much smaller, uh, if any. Maybe a little, who knows? But the numbers are there now, so it doesn't go below that. Maybe a little below 10%, as Ezekiel said. He put a few more hair in. Uh, so, that is what God says will occur. 
So those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, verse 7, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are going out. But how can we give you God's Spirit? That comes from Him. We can't give you of our oil. Go to the place where it is. Buy for yourselves. Where is it going to be? With the two witnesses in the remnant church. That's where God's going to pour out His Spirit in Joel 2. Not anywhere else. And while they went to buy, while they were looking for it, trying to, too late, to get the job done, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Then came the other virgins, saying, Open to us. And he answered, I don't know you. <laughs> then he says, Be alert. Watch. Be very, very careful. For you know not neither, or you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. So Joel 2 says, Get ready. And he says, I will likely turn and bless my people who will turn to me, and the rest won't. So is there an example there of a leader who has lost about half, has slumbered and slept? Is that a prophecy, or is it just a parable? I ask you. I suspect it may be a prophecy. Now, What about rending your heart? Not your garments, but your heart. Let's go back to Psalm 51. As I said earlier, it's between you and God. It isn't necessarily for the public to see. But David had sinned some great sins and had departed. Now, he was a man of God. He was a man of great emotion and when he sinned, he sinned big, but when he repented, he repented big. So, here he has a prayer of repentance before God, and he was facing pretty much what we're facing today. The kingdom had turned a lot of them against him. He had enemies in his own family and in his own house. Uh, there were conspiracies to get rid of him, to kill him to destroy his kingship. About that, it's happened throughout history over and over. God says it will happen again here at the end. And even as a specific one about Anatov, it says there will be a rebellion but those who rebel will go into the tribulation, and every last one of them will die there. Man, woman, and child. So, this is nothing new. Uh, there were conspiracies against David to uh, cause him to abdicate and even to die. So, he was facing what the early New Testament church faced, like uh, Paul did with Alexander the coppersmith and others. And those who left became enemies. Worldwide had the same thing happen. We've had the same thing happen. Uh, other splinter groups from worldwide have had the same things happen. So David was feeling the weight of even his own family and friends and closest inner circle turning on him. So he went to God and pled this prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. 
According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Does that sound like what we just read God tells us to do in Joel 2? Right at the end, just as the day of the Lord is approaching, we're to turn to God and ask Him to forgive us and have mercy on us. And He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, when you open your heart to God, you're opening the darkest recesses of it. You're willing to admit to God that you need thoroughly washed and cleaned. We're approaching Passover, where the perfect sacrifice, Emmanuel the King, who never sinned, who never had even a slightly dark spot in his heart, never had deceit or hypocrisy in his mind, lived an absolutely perfect life who was willing to die that our sins could be blotted out, that we would not have to die for them. And David is here asking for that upon himself. Now, David will be the king of all Israel and the world tomorrow. So David's life was a microcosm of what people in God's church would go through. I mean, from Enoch and Noah through every time period, what did God's people go through? You can read a brief summary of it there in Hebrews 11, where they became outcasts and hiding in caves and were sawed in two and beheaded and all those things that occurred to them throughout history. And then you can add the New Testament to that, early New Testament. Those things happened again, and they are happening on a spiritual level in the church today, and it is about to turn physical uh, when the temple in Jerusalem are built and Satan is cast down. The church goes to Zion, and those who are left behind will not only spiritually die unless they repent, but they will be physically killed, just as those of ancient times. So David, who will ultimately be king achieved God's forgiveness here. He achieved the mercies of God. So, what he went through and what he had to do to lend his heart and to turn to God is what God is asking us to do. He's not asking us to do what anyone else, more than anyone else, has ever done in the past. So, cleanse me. And he says, then I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He wasn't trying to hide anything from God. He says, this is what I've done. This is what I am. I need you, Father. Help me. Are we not praying that today, as we see ourselves in the eyes of some of our peers here, say we failed? We are no more. We amount to nothing. Is that so? Or do these numbers indicate that my God might be working with us in spite of ourselves and that we might wind up successful after all, after having been reduced in the exact same proportions as those in the past? I think there's still hope. And we need to pray this prayer and apply it to ourselves. Against you and you only have I sinned. Our sins aren't against each other. Our sins really are against God's law and God. 
And people who rebel against what God is doing are rebelling against God, not man. That has always been the case throughout the rebellions from Noah and Moses and all down through history. <coughs> Samuel, you can name them one after another. That you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. He says, God, I have no excuse. <laughs> I did these things. I am these things. So I'm not going to hide from you. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He says, ever since I was conceived, my human heart and mind has been deceitful and desperately wicked and sinful. Just that's what I am. It isn't what we've done, it's what we are that causes us to do what we do. You desire truth in the inward parts. Do you rend your heart? Do you open it before God and show the truth? And in the hidden part, you shall make me to know wisdom. He says, after I bear my soul to you and open my heart to you, uh, maybe I'll learn something. Maybe you'll teach me some wisdom out of this. <clears throat> Doesn't it say that we go through all kinds of trials, troubles, and persecutions? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but they'll learn from them. You know what David's saying here? Isn't David going through what you and I feel in our lives? I, I come here fairly often and recount some of these things, because this is how I feel. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. It's a scrubbing. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Doesn't he tell us to don our holy garments, to become righteous, to be clean, to be pure, so that we can bear his vessels? Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. So he says, I've gone through a lot here, and it's like my bones have been broken. I got enemies on every side, uh, beset with rebellion in the kingdom, rebellion in my house. My closest trusted leaders in my kingdom have turned against me. One of them even had to die. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Here they are before you. Please, please hide them, Father. They're so apparent. Create in me a clean heart, not a deceitful, desperately wicked one, but a clean one. And sometimes you have to turn something inside out and rend it wide open before it can be cleaned. It's just like having a boil or a big pimple on your arm or your face. And you can wipe over it, but it doesn't solve the problem, does it? You've got to lance that thing. You've got to squeeze the the uh, filth out of it, the pus, in order to have it cleansed so that it can heal. And the heart is the same way. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So he was in fear that the sins he had done were so terrible, so egregious, so horrible that God would just reject him. And he's pleading that God would not do that. Then he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold with your free spirit. In other words, encourage me, strengthen me. 
I realize what I've been and what I've done. I'm sorry. I need you. I'm turning to you. Help me with your free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. He had to get rid of the beam in his own eye before he could get the mote out of anybody else's. So he says, clean me up, help me, and I'll continue with your work. Then I'll help others once I get myself cleaned up here and you accept me as such. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He says, I know I'm deserving of death. The things I've done should have me stoned. So I, I, did, I accept that. You God of my salvation. So at the time that he was feeling so very, very low about himself, he still had faith and trust that God could deliver him. Don't ever give up your faith that God can deliver you. Believe it. By your works, show it. So if you deliver me from the death that I deserve, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Not mine. He says that our filthy, hypocritical self-righteousness is going to be turned into his righteousness in the last verse of Isaiah 54. And that's what David is saying. My righteousness is his filthy rags. I've done nothing. I've sinned. I deserve to die. Give me your righteousness. And I'll sing aloud of it. Because God is the only one that can forgive us. O Lord, open you my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you desire not sacrifice, else I'd give that. You don't delight in burnt offering. That doesn't solve the problem. It was his own heart that needed cleaned. Then he says it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, doesn't Joel say, if we turn to him with our whole heart and rend our heart, not our garments, if we will become humble and obedient before him, that he will then turn and bless us? Isn't Joel 2 saying the exact same thing that David is saying here? That when you find yourself, your kingdom dispersed, your life in danger, you're about to go under, that you can turn to God and He will save you. He will not despise that attitude if you will come to have it. So He's promising here, you clean it up, you come to me, you turn to me, and I will not despise that effort. I will honor it, in other words. And then David turns from himself here. He says, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. Doesn't he tell us to flee to Zion, to get out of Babylon and go to Zion, and there he will build the walls of Jerusalem, just as he did in Ezra and Nehemiah's day? He's going to do it again. Haggai and Zechariah are full of it. Isaiah, other prophecies are full of it. So, let's rend our hearts, not our garments. Turn to God with all our heart. And then it says, if we will turn to do His work out of all this destruction, all this hate, all this misery, all this frustration that then he will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness 
not unrighteousness, but righteousness. Not playing a role, not being a hypocrite, but really believing his word. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon your altar. So there is what God expects us to do in order to accomplish the rending of our hearts. Now, last week's sermon on that tape, it showed what rending means. And I wanted to cover today what you need to do, how you need to go about it, just as David did. Such a primary example of it. And he was suffering the same events that we are right then. If you don't believe it, turn to Psalm 73. And in this context here, we'll wrap this up. But let's look at some of the things David had to say here. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Isn't that what we've been saying? That God will do good, He will bless, He will help those who have a clean heart. Now yours and mine are and have been deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know them? So he tells us to rend them, to open them, to cleanse them, as David did, as we just read. And he promised there, and David recited it, that if I clean my heart up, you will turn to me, and you will not despise me. So we have our part to do, but we can ensure that God will bless by doing what he's telling us to do here. It's a violent act. It's an emotional act. It's a big deal. It was a big deal with David because he feared death itself, even from those that he had loved and trusted. Now, doesn't this sound like what the church has gone through and what you and I have and are going through? But as for me, in comparison to having a clean heart and having had blessings from God, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well near slipped. I was falling on my face, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked around, he saw other people aren't having the trouble I'm having. They're doing well. What's wrong with me? For there are no hands in their death, but their strength is firm. He had people whose hands were trying to kill him, and there were people out there who were just plain wicked. (coughs) Nobody was trying to kill them. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Do you feel sometimes like our trouble has almost reached plague volume? I do. He's just, he's saying here the things I feel and you probably feel. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. They're just full of pride. They're proud, vain, egotistical. Violence covers them as a garment. They're, They're all about being violent, isn't it? What we see around us today in every media, every movie, nearly we see everything on TV, it's all about violence. In the news, it's all about violence, rape, murder, pillage, terrorism. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And, you know, they seem to still have everything and plenty. And here we are, suffering. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Doesn't it say there that that the daughter of Babylon in the end time, the United States, will say, I've not sinned. I'm not going to be a widow, Revelation 18. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm the greatest nation on earth. 
That's what David's enemies were saying. They'd, they were looking down on him. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. They gossip. They talk about me. They stab me in the back. Uh, they're setting their mouth against the things that God in heaven has done, and their gossip walks through the earth. How familiar that is. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Don't you sometimes feel like the world is prospering and we're going downhill and about to die out? That's what John felt at the end of the early New Testament era. It's what Herbert Armstrong felt. He even said to me one time, I shouldn't be taking this medicine, but if I die, I'm afraid the church will fall apart. He doesn't know how much a prophet he was. He says, I know I need to be depending on God instead of taking these pills, but boy, I'm scared to die. Well, his, his faith in God was a little weak, but he saw what was going on. And David did too, didn't he? And do we not? We see it. Doesn't God know about this? Does, does God have this knowledge? Why doesn't he do something about it? It's prophesied, brethren. I think what has happened to us right here is prophesied. Jeremiah 11 is an absolute direct prophecy about Anathoth and its rebellion, which has just occurred and is occurring. It's very, very clear. And we've gone from 150 to about 15, about a 10% drop, a 90% drop to 10%. It's prophesied. God hasn't failed. His prophecies are occurring. We're suffering the trouble. That's okay. When God says it will happen and it happens, what complaint do you have? David was thought of as nothing by those in his kingdom. God preserved him. God saw him through it all. Will he do the same with us? Verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Truly, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He's referring back to his prayer that we just read in Psalm 51. He said, I, I've repented. I'm seeking to serve you with all my heart. I've asked to be cleansed and delivered. And did I do it all in vain? And you still haven't answered? For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. All the news I hear is bad news. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of your children. I, I can't even figure out the right things to say. Because I offend the people no matter what I say. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. It just... It's a trial. It's, it's difficult. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Where did I go? Where did you go to find the answers to what's happening to us right now? Into God's Word. His sanctuary. His Word. And there we find the answers. These numbers I threw out at you today about the church early church, the later church, and now even the latter church, all fit. We understand the end of this. 
Surely you did set them in slippery places. You casted them down into destruction. Psalms is a book of prophecy. How are they brought to desolation as in a moment? He says, this, I understand now. I'm going to go through trouble and trial and tribulation, and it'll look like the end of the road to me. I'm hanging on the knot at the end of the rope. But it's going to turn, and they will be utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He says he's going to come dwell with his people in Zion and protect them and help them. He says those who have decided to destroy instead of build are going to be scared to death and cast out. That's in Zechariah 2. See, we understand what is going to happen by going into God's Word. So we see the evil, we see the trouble, we see the decimation in the greater church and in the, our church, God's church here. So he says, I woke up and understood what would happen. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before you. I was leaned to my own understanding and I, I felt like an animal. But then I looked to you and I understood. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have held me by my right hand. He says, in spite of all the trouble, I still recognize that you're in my life, O God. You shall guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. And he will be the glorious king of all Israel and the world tomorrow. <clears throat> so he trusted God that... Not only would God forgive him in Psalm 51, but all these troubles that he was still suffering would also be taken away. And God would see through and give him salvation. That's encouragement and help and should help build our faith that no matter what we're going through here, God is able to save us from ourselves, from the world, and from Satan. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Nobody could do the things God could do. My flesh and my heart fail. I feel that way sometimes, don't you? When I see people die, when I see people leave, when I see people rebel, it hurts my heart. But we have to look to God, who is the strength of our heart and my portion forever. Do you see God in your life? Do you see these things happening? Does it look pretty black and a lot of despair? Do you hear people say, hey, you failed, and think, well, maybe so? No. Consider these scriptures. Consider these numbers. Consider God's promises and his prophecies. He said it would be this way. He said people in the parable of the sower would fall away and dry up, and all of these things would happen. And the ten percents, all through the Bible. Those that are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all them that go whoring from you. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the eternal God, that I may declare all your works. And that's what he said he'd do at the end of Psalm 51, wasn't it? That he would get through the agony, the bad conscience, the fear, the doubt that he would trust God again and declare his works. Let's continue on just a little more here. It's this, this rings so true of us. 
chapter 74. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? We look at ourselves and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Our health, the health of those around us, the health of the church. Remember your congregation when you have purchased, which you purchased of old, purchased it with his son's death and life. The rod of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. This Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. He says, remember, before we're destroyed, how can you just keep after us this way? Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. Lift your feet up and get them off us. Your enemies roar in the midst of your congregations. Isn't that true? They set up their ensigns for signs. They're, they're flying a different flag. A man was famous, according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. The lumberjacks get together and have competitions to see who can do the best job of knocking trees over. But it's gotten worse. Now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They've cast fire into your sanctuary. They've brought trouble within your church. What does fire do? It destroys. What do we have happening right now? People who are trying to destroy that which God has built. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of your name to the ground. Has God placed his name in Zion? Has he placed it here? Yes, he has. But they're trying to get the church dissolved, this church. This, dissolve it, destroy it, and turn it over, turn its assets over to us. That's very explicitly what their lawsuit asks. Is it foretold right here? They said in their hearts, Let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land, trying to destroy instead of build. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there any among us, any that knows how long. And do we feel that the same way Habakkuk did? How long, O Lord? O oh God, how long shall the adversary approach? Shall the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Is this, is this going to just go on and on and not, not ever end? Why withdraw you your hand, even your right hand? Pluck it out of your bosom, turn and bless us. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He says, in, in spite of all this that's going on, there's hope. God works salvation. And then he begins to recount the things of the past that God has done to give himself encouragement and faith and belief. You're the one who divided the sea. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan. You gave him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You clothed the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers, the Jordan. The day is yours, the night is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. We can worship God with the sun shining or the moon and the stars. You have set all the borders of the earth. You made summer and winter. Everything that we experience down here is a creation of God. <laughs> we told in Acts 1 that we're to look to the creation to see God. That's what David's doing right here. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Eternal, 
that the foolish people have blasphemed your name, and not even known it, thinking they're worshiping, they're blaspheming God. Oh, deliver not the soul of your turtle dove to the multitude of the wicked. He feared that. He had people who were trying to kill him. <coughs> Forget not the congregation of the poor forever, those who would serve him. Remember, have respect to the covenant you made, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Cruelty and violence now are the watchword around the world. <coughs> Let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. That's us. Praise his name for what he has done and for what he will do. Arise, O God. Here's a call to God to get up. Stand up. Plead your own cause. These, we're your people. Plead our cause. We're your cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Forget not the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those that rise up against you increases continually. More and more, there's going to be persecution and opposition to any who will try to serve God. All right, let's read one more. Unto you, O God, do we give thanks. Now, here's the attitude we need to come to have once we deal with all these things that we've been talking about here that David dealt with and the church has dealt with. Unto you do we give thanks for that your name is near, your wondrous works declare. All the things he's told us he's going to do in Joel and all the other prophecies. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. Sounds like Isaiah 24. I bear up the pillars of it. I said to the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked lift not up your horn. Don't do that, but they will. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. We don't need to be proud, to be vain, to be egocentric. We need to be humble, and if God is using us for an example... We need to be humbled by that and turn to him and plead our cause. For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. There's another psalm that says he dwells in the sides of the north. His kingdom, his heavenly throne is in the north. So you're not going to get promotion from the east, the west, or the south. It's going to come from the north. It even says that our physical leader is going to be from the north and come from the east there in Isaiah. For in the hand of the eternal there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he pours out the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. It's going to save the good and have it with us in his kingdom, but the dregs, the red wine, that which is not yet uh, fulfilled, is not yet uh, fermented properly, is the dregs, the bottom of the barrel. Doesn't, it's not good. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. So what we're going through, brethren, has been prophesied long, long ago. And when we, he says to rend our hearts and turn to him with our whole heart, that maybe he will show mercy and turn, forgive, and bless, he means it. 
we can have faith in His Word, and it needs to be the kind of faith that we show Him by our works, by what we do, by cleansing, by purifying, by helping and turning and helping one another, even as that is an example that Christ goes by to judge us. How you treat others is how I will treat you. So we are called not to be hypocrites, base and critical, but we are called to be genuine and pure and clean and of right emotion and right motivation to serve God with all our hearts and his people with all our hearts. Then he will turn and he will bless us.